Welcome, everyone, to Politics Express, the Postwriters Politics podcast. I'm your host, the Postwriters Politics editor, Lars Emerson, and this week we're here with a special guest to talk about the ins and outs of political advertising and outreach in the modern day. With me today to discuss is, of course, our editor-in-chief, Mike Levito. What's up, Mike? Not, not too much. Well, that's lovely to hear. And also with me is our special guest this episode, Faith Rokowski, who handles digital advertising, fundraising, and strategy for a Democratic digital consulting firm. Hello, Faith. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining. Oh, I'm stoked. Uh, <laughs> good. So before we dive in, and while you're still stoked, can you give us a little more background about you and the various organizations you've worked for and just like what you do? Yeah, so I do. Uh, if you've ever received an email from a candidate before asking you for money, I do that. I'm on the other side of those emails. If you've ever scrolled Facebook before and seen an ad for a candidate asking for money, I do that. I'm on the other side of that. Um, and then I've done that for various organizations for the last five or six years. I've bounced around the agency world for a little bit. I spent a little bit of time uh, running the small dollar email and text program at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. And I'm back at another agency for the 2022 cycle. Oh, exciting. Um, so you, you've, mo- you've worked primarily on the Democratic side or exclusively on the Democratic exclusively side? Exclusively on the Democratic okay. side. Just checking. I get a lot of emails from a Donald Trump. He just yeah. want to make sure that's not you. Got a lot to say. <laughs> um, perfect. So I figure the easiest place for us to start is uh, by, I guess, discussing the current system of campaign and organizational fundraising and advertising. Um, so just as like a quick overview, there are individual limits for campaigns. Uh, in 2022, individuals can give up to $2,900 per election to a candidate and also $10,000 to state and local party committees, and then a multiple of that to uh, national party committees like the RNC and DNC. So you work for Blueprint Interactive Faith, uh, mm-hmm. which is a strategy firm for Democrats and Democratic causes, which uh, you, you say you focus on fundraising and advertising. Where, where do you fit into the process between donations and election day? Well, I don't, I don't know if you all know this, but uh, campaigns and politics are run on money. So you can't run an effective campaign. You can't run an effective um, really anything without having the money to do so. So a lot of times candidates will hire us right at the beginning when they're propping up their campaign as part of their fundraising apparatus. So we will get hired to build up their small dollar program. And this, of course, is different from when you're a candidate and you're making calls to rich people asking for $2,900 or asking for for $5,600, which is the the, you can give $2,900 per primary or per general. Mm -hmm. Um, We aren't focused on super rich people who are getting those calls. We're focused on more of the small dollar donors. Um, You know, Bernie Sanders used to say that his average donation was $27. Those are the types of folks that we're really focused on. So we will come in a lot of times at the very beginning of a campaign to help prop up that fundraising apparatus and to keep that fundraising apparatus going from launch day through election day. 
Um, and then additionally, digital fits into the larger campaign infrastructure as well. So when you're running a campaign, the part of the paid communications aspect, you're going to be running a mail program, you'll probably be running a TV program, and then you'll likely be running a digital program as well. So that's when you're scrolling on Facebook or you're reading a news article and a little video pops up in the corner and it's a video about the candidate talking about their bio. We place those ads. A lot of times we produce those ads as well. So what's what's your day-to-day like if you're explaining it to someone who's only on the voting end or, or people who maybe donate a little to a candidate or party who see some ads and then vote in November? You, met, you mentioned that you are, are kind of in the middle there, but let's, you know, a candidate hires you, go. What do you do on a daily basis? Oh, man, the greatest answer... Uh, that I ever give in digital is it depends because it's so different. It's um, a very lawyerly answer. <laughs> correct. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we get to the end, as we're approaching primary day, when we're getting down to nine weeks out and eight weeks out, as we're getting down to election day, we're really getting down to the wire here. A lot of what we focus on really is uh, running those advertisements to try and turn out those voters. Um, of course, it's the, the whole campaign is working together. So they've identified who, who those voters are that they need to turn out. We are finding them where they are on digital and serving ads to them to, to ensure that when they do go out to vote on election day, they're voting for the people that we want them to vote for. And then on the other end of that, you need the money to pay to keep those ads up. So a lot of times your digital firm will sometimes do double duty. So they'll raise the money for you. And then that money that they raise is going to go back out the door to keep those ads running and ensure that folks who go out to vote, go out to vote for you. Interesting. I, I would not have guessed that the, the firm in the middle does both. That's interesting. They can sometimes, other times they don't. There are some firms that focus specifically on fundraising, other firms that focus specifically on ads, um, some that do both. Sometimes candidates will hire one firm to do both. Other times they'll split it up and have one do fundraising, the other do advertising. Gotcha. Do you, so my, my next question was kind of about, uh, we've been talking from like the candidate perspective, but do you also mm-hmm. do like organizational advertising, like let's say Planned Parenthood or... You know, PETA wants to run an issue ad <laughs> or a fundraising drive. Do could they reach out to you too? Yes, um, yes. So my agency, we we do work with candidates. We additionally work with uh, other organizations, like not PETA specifically, but organizations like that who either want to play in in particular elections or there's a, a you know piece of legislation that they're advocating for and they want to run something about that. Gotcha. So does that mean you work in both hard and soft money? Um, I I would say it depends. <laughs> okay. It depends certainly on uh, who we're working with and what we're working with them for. I'm going to jump in with like a hard versus soft money because I realize I'm throwing that term around. Oh, okay. So hard, hard money is like you give money to a candidate and it's strictly limited what they can spend it on and what you can, how much you can give them. Soft money is like issue ads. I'm sure there's a little nuance I, there that I'm... I, I definitely learned that in like AP US politics at one point, but I completely <laughs> forgot it. So thank you for saving, Lars. There are certainly different laws that, that govern um, what you can say when you're using quote unquote soft money um, right. in the way in which you can say it. But uh, yeah. Like you can't say vote for... Or, exactly. Yeah. You have to say, like, big oil is bad and just sort of leave it at that. 
America wants legislation. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so so you work kind of uh, in between both. Both. Yeah, it sort it depends on who hires us and what they're hiring us for, but we 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 do take both. Gotcha. Uh, so there are just a very broad question before we get into some nitty gritty on campaign email and advertising. There are a lot of political consulting firms in D.C. Uh, there's a lot of fundraising arms, et cetera. What, what makes a particular firm better than any other? This is a, the question I was dreading. I'm not going to tell on myself here. Um, I think that there's no such thing as a bad firm. There's just bad tactics. And some firms choose to employ some of these bad tactics and others sort of categorically refuse to not. And that's kind of, uh, we'll get into this a little bit more, I think, as we, um, you know, start talking here. But uh, some firms will choose to use tactics that parts of the industry have determined to be unethical or have been chatting about being unethical. And then others are sort of like, I'm not gonna sort of get into that. I, I mean, I have to ask, can you preview yeah. what's an unethical tactic? I think one of the ones that was going around on Twitter was uh, sending emails. I can think of two off the top of my head. One of them, you know, sending emails during the pandemic with a subject line, you know, you're confirmed your job interview tomorrow when like thousands upon thousands of people had lost their jobs and were struggling financially. Um, that's just... I mean, in my opinion, I think that's really unethical to send stuff like that. Other other ones that have gone viral are uh, emails that are made to look like a bill or uh, like a utility bill or something like that and telling folks that they have, you know, they're on their last chance to pay something. Um, and it's just a fundraising solicitation. Donald Trump additionally got in trouble for using uh, pre-checked recurring boxes. So someone would contribute what they thought was a one-time donation of $10. And it was just like a recurring contribution that they would contribute every single month. And it would seem to be impossible to turn off. Yes, that's what I was fishing for. Yeah. And, like, disproportionately targeted uh, elderly people who did not really understand correct and, and it, i'm not sure if it's him or the rnc but they just started doing something i think in the last month that's rubbed people the wrong way where they sent out text messages that's like do you support joe biden uh, and it's like if you respond no you will be making a donation and like that'll be in the fine print of the text <sighs> or something like that i don't know that's again another unethical tactic a lot of what digital is is we operate at the gray area of places where there aren't really laws yet <laughs> so that's how peer-to-peer -peer texting and like blast test texting sort of operate like peer-to-peer -peer, we haven't legislated yet it's a loophole in the law um so that's why you get so many text messages from candidates on lists that you didn't sign up for i just love the idea of like some let's let's say redneck <laughs> gets a text message from a random number that says, do you support Joe Biden? <laughs> he responds, no. <laughs> he just like, texting this number Contribute back. $15 yeah, for the rest of your life. <laughs> very funny to me. Um, but Democrats have certainly employed strategies like this, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, that recurring one in particular, the uh, payment processing tool that we use is called ActBlue. They've pretty much uh, banned that, so Democrats really can't do that anymore. 
it's still continuing to be a pro- problem on the Republican side, probably because it continues to raise money. Mm. So they, they're not going to ban it, but uh, Act Blue took action and we're not allowed to do that anymore. Gotcha. Uh, Mike, you want to jump in with some nitty gritty questions? Yeah. So you mentioned uh, people getting emails or text messages from a mail list that they've never been on before. I actually <laughs> was reporting a story in 2020 about uh, the congressional elections in northern New Jersey, and I emailed the Morris County Republican Party asking for a comment or interview, and now I'm on their mailing list, um, which I, ne- I had not intended to happen. I never even said I wanted to give them money. So h- how do people get on these mailing lists? Because it seems like you know people keep getting added to them even when they don't realize that they're doing something that would get them added to it. Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. If you have ever contributed to a candidate before ever in your life, doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter when it was, but if you, not even you two, but just you in general as a person have ever contributed, your name and your information is valuable. Because what do, what is the point of a digital email list? It's to raise money. And if you have contributed money, you are your information is primed to be bought because all of that all of that information exists out there and when you're first building a list especially when you're a candidate who has never run before or maybe doesn't have a hugely wealthy network anything to that effect when you're looking to build a list a lot of times what you're first going to go to is one of these data vendors who who have the information of folks who have contributed in the last 90 days in the last year in the last however long and we can just purchase those names outright um, so that's one way that you can get on a list. Another one is if uh, two candidates are buddies and they decide, let's just swap our email lists, see, you know, mm-hmm. if we've got any, like, you know, I am a congressman in New York and you're a congressman in New Jersey. Like, our, the two people on our email lists are probably likely to both like us. So they'll, they'll, mat- they'll uh, you know, match up and they'll combine or uh, swap email lists and you can in-kind that with the FEC. So it's not... Uh, campaign finance violations. So that's another way that you can get on a list if you haven't, you know, subscribed to it. Additionally, there are lots of ways that you can purchase people uh, like via ads. So if you've ever scrolled on Facebook and you've gotten um, a graphic or something that says, we need to end the filibuster, like add your name right now if you stand with us to end the filibuster. Most of the time, those are sponsored by candidates and that's them trying to acquire more folks for their email list aren't there also giveaways where they'll they'll be like get a free sticker from hillary clinton if you sign up for this that was really big during the pandemic to be honest um but yes that is a thing that we tend when i say we i tend not to do that a lot because it involves a lot of lawyers (laughs) uh there's a lot of different you can't I'm not going to pretend to understand the law here, but you can't just tell people that they will receive something if they contribute some other amount. It's very specific, so I don't do that a lot, but that is another way to do it. I was going to say, I feel like it's probably a slippery slope between, like, get a free sticker and also then getting to, like, you know, oh, we'll also give you, like, you know, we'll pay your gas bill or something, right? Right. It's like very Tammany Hall, it sounds like. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of those emails, like, you know, it seems like they're being sent out constantly, right? Like your your people's inbox are constantly being sort of flooded with them. I guess my question is, what's the strategy kind of behind this insistence? 
and um, also how how do you make that happen? Yeah, so common knowledge holds that the more times that you ask people people for money and the more people that you ask for money, the more money you're going to raise. That like that's just sort of the the assumption that we go on and it's the assumption that we use a lot of times in digital. So you know, when you have to raise a certain amount, when your campaign manager comes to you and says, hey, we've budgeted out that you guys are going to raise $10,000 for us on digital. You say, great. Now let's work backwards to go like see how we can raise that amount of money. And there's some there's certain things that we can't change, right? We can't change the average gift. We sort of can't. Um, we can try. But if your list is full of people who know you personally or are quite wealthy, it's it's more likely that your average gift is going to be a lot higher. Other times, for various reasons, your average gift is going to be a lot lower. It's it's much more difficult for us to pull that lever. Hmm. It's it's pretty difficult for us to pull, you know, change the environment of the country. Like I can't do that as a digital practitioner. What I can do, the easiest lever for me to change is to increase or decrease the amount of emails that we're sending. And if I have a certain quota or if I have a certain projection that I need to meet, and I know, you know, this is what my average gift is, this is what my conversion rate is, this is what I can reasonably expect from one email, just doing the math, that tells me that I need to send 35 emails this month and it's my job to figure out when and, when and how we're sending them. So... In terms of how we do that, it's just a lot of writing. <laughs> Wait, dare I ask, is there a best time of day? It depends. Uh, okay. There it is again. It depends on the list. So sometimes lists respond really well. I had a, you know, I had a candidate before who, you know, people would respond really well on Sunday nights for whatever reason. Like whenever we sent an email on Sunday at 7 p.m., that would always have a really high number of donations that would come in you know i uh, another other candidates if you try sending on sunday at 7 p.m right, you just right. won't get anybody to open it so it really just depends on who your list is and who they're made up of gotcha well, so speaking of i can say i just said speaking of those emails i've said that like three times already but we're talking about email campaigns um so it seems like a big trend uh the past few years uh when it comes to these email campaigns is these sort of like apocalyptic subject lines like you know uh, candidates kind of like uh, basically doom posting about like a, a, a close poll or basically saying we're done, it's over, you know, unless you give me X amount of dollars. Um, is that a strategy you think is effective? I know there are other like best practices for an email campaign, things you try to avoid, not just because of like ethical legal reasons, but also just from like an efficacy standpoint. I think that folks have gotten a lot smarter online than they were in even 2018. I think that um, a lot of times the people who send out the emails that say, you know, we're done, go home, give up. A lot of, you'll see that a lot of times from the DTRIP. You'll see that a lot of times from the DSCC um, and other party committees like that. I don't work at the DTRIP. I, I would assume that if they're sending emails like that, it's because the data shows that they're doing well and that they are effective and that they're performing really well. Um, I am of the opinion that people see right through that stuff and that it's just like the obvious hyperbole is doing more harm than good. Um, people see right through it. They, they know, like, if you send an email that says Nancy Pelosi is locked in a closet, give me $15 to let her out. Like, people see right through that. Like, people, people are much more digitally savvy now than they were even in 2018. Like, 
they kind of know that emails aren't personally being sent by the candidate. They're they're kind of Wait, aware. What? I know. <laughs> the, Crazy, that right? email from Hillary Clinton wasn't from her. It said it's we could shocking. go to Hamilton together. No. <laughs> I, I think that emails like that, the ones that are like pretty obviously hyperbolic, are it just makes the rest of our jobs more difficult. Huh. People are, are getting too smart. So would you consider that a bad practice? I, I think that... Certainly, the folks who use them, I would assume that their stats sheets and their data is showing them that it's useful to use them. It's not a tactic I would ever personally employ. What's like a good email look like? It depends. Um, <laughs> you, it, it really depends, honestly, on your candidate and their list, right? Like, if you're on John Fetterman's email list, for example, you probably have never seen a candidate's emails like that before. He uses emojis. He uses like meme references. He references pop culture. And that kind of thing really would only work for John Fetterman. Like that kind of thing would not work for, I don't know, Jerry Connolly. Like <laughs> Can you some, you know, it's, it's really just about the kind of um, brand that you're trying to build digitally and the kind of um, program that you're looking to build, right? Because candidates who are in a super competitive election, they have more of a reason to be using their email list. And that reason is fundraising. But if you're someone who's held a seat for 20 years and you have no danger of losing it, maybe raising money via digital is not your top priority. Maybe your email list is more about sharing resources with your constituents or talking about the newest bill that you just passed. It's, it sort of depends on what you're trying to use your program for and the kind of brand that you've cultivated and the list that you've spent money to build. Speaking of John Fetterman, he's probably had kind of the most um, Twitter-friendly uh, digital strategy, at least at least from my perspective. You know, there, there's a lot of memes and kind of like the way he tries to dunk on them at Oz. Um, it just seems very sort of well. Doctor uh, Oz. <laughs> Dr. Oz. He didn't go to medical him. school <laughs> for you to call him Mehmet. Hey, to, for me to call him his real name. Um <laughs> You know, obviously, it's gotten a lot of traction, certainly among, obviously, more democratically uh, places on Twitter and the Internet. Um, are there kinds of, like, essentially, what makes a good digital campaign, I guess, is the question I'm asking. What, what, what kind of things work best in, in those advertisements? In advertisements or in email? Uh, uh, advertisements, digital okay. advertisements. Yeah. I think... As much as we like to think that everything on digital is organic, it's really not. <laughs> um, uh, so a lot of, um, there's a big difference between paid comms and between social media, right? So on social media, you see that Fetterman is dunking on Oz. He is, uh, con he's just dunking on him constantly. He's memeing him constantly. He's quote tweeting him constantly. And that's because his, his audience on his Twitter are folks who are probably already with Fetterman and are probably already going to vote for him. And if they aren't voting for him, they're probably on his email list and they're probably contributing to him. Like, those are John Fetterman's super fans. If you follow a candidate on Twitter or if you're on someone's email list, it's not because you hate that person. <laughs> or that's what we can reasonably assume. Well, and you also probably have a lot of people who can't vote for you. Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but when you watch his ads, they're, they're much more measured. So his ads are much more about what he's going to do when he's in Senate. They're much more about protecting 
um, workers and protecting working families. They're much more Pennsylvania focused. And he's able to do that. He's able to uh, create these ads that are much more about the election because he has this basis of folks who are like John Fetterman stands and like willing to sort of bankroll them. Like he, he built such a strong brand on Twitter and on social and using email, using all of these different avenues that he's able to run ads that are message tested and have been poll tested. Like we know what works. We message tested all of them. We poll tested all of them. We know what's going to move the needle. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what's the big difference between say like a T like a T a commercial you might air on TV and one you might, uh, sort of send out on Twitter or Facebook or something like that? Uh, the budgets. <laughs> a, a good TV shoot is going to cost you a million dollars. Um, digital, we don't have those kind of budgets for production. Um, we often have a fraction of the budget for uh, TV as well, just in terms of running them. TV tends to be a lot more expensive than digital, um, and we have to adjust the way that we're doing things. So if you watch a, a TV ad, it tends to be 30 seconds. Um, and it tends to have the thesis statement at the very end, right? So it'll have the, you know, Joe Schmo is running for Congress and he's doing it because he cares so much about A, B, and C. And that'll be at the very end after the, the first 25 seconds is about who Joe is and like what he stands for and all of that. In digital, we typically run 15 seconds. So we have that much less time to make our point just because 15 seconds is unskippable on a lot of platforms. And you'll know that if you've ever watched a YouTube video that you needed to watch super quick and an ad plays and you can't get through it. You just can't skip it. You have to watch the ad. So 15 seconds is unskippable on a lot of placements. So we'll run the 15 seconds. And additionally, people on digital just have a shorter attention span. Um, hmm. We can reasonably assume that people will watch the first 25% of your ad. So you need to make your point in the first three seconds. I have a side question to that. Mm. If you're targeting for like certain age groups, is Facebook older or younger than I think it would be? Um, I feel like if I'm trying to get like 50 year olds, I'd target Facebook. People have said that. Uh, I, I'm not... 100% sure what the current breakdown of Facebook is now just because it's just like constantly changing. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I've had a lot of success weirdly doing, you know, targeting people 18 to 35 on Facebook. Um, oh. I'm just curious. <laughs> I feel like I might even have something to do with the kind of 18 to 35 year old who uses Facebook, right? <laughs> I feel I feel like it, it attracts like a more maybe uh, like a like a less ironic, less sarcastic yeah. than like a Twitter user or something more earnest. I don't know. Um, spe speaking of that, like how frequently are you calibrating advertisements for specific uh, demographics or, or voter types? Right. How often are you saying, all right, this is an ad targeted towards women. This is an ad targeted towards um, you know, Hispanic voters, how often are you, are you, are you trying to tailor your emails and your, so, and mm -hmm. your digital ads uh, to that way? Candidates' favorite words are micro-targeting, to be honest. <laughs> they love the idea of getting super granular and like targeting like one specific person with a particular message. Um, on email, we, we don't do that a lot just because it's not super effective. Um, 
breaking people down by the issues that matter to them. A lot of times we, it's, it's just more difficult to target via email, but on ads, um, everything that we do is in conjunction with the larger consulting team. So most candidates, most races are gonna be running some kind of mail program. Um, most races are gonna be running some kind of TV program and most races are gonna be running some kind of digital program. And all of them are gonna work together. So if you get your poll back and it says that, you know, women, 24 to 50 are your swing voters. Those are the ones that you need to convince to go out to vote for you. But they're scattered across three different towns. Let's just say this is happening for the sake of argument. Um, it, it may not be the smartest idea to put all of your budget towards one town. You might split that up between digital and TV and, and mail. And of course, there's very there's real world things that you have to consider. Not every district has either an affordable media market for TV or even a media market at all. Um, so that's something that you have to consider where digital or mail could, could pick up the slack here. A lot of times it's we, we see what TV is able to do and then we're, we sort of fill in the gaps there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we talked, we talked, we mentioned some names about some names when it comes to uh, digital advertising, like John Fetterman, we talked about kind of what makes a good ad, what makes a bad ad. Are there any candidates or campaigns, could be in this election cycle, could be in previous election cycles, who stand out to you as people who have used these tools well and really put together effective uh, advertising campaigns? Mm, that's a great question. I think uh, candidates are getting a lot smarter <laughs> about digital. I think 2018 was the first year that we really saw the tides turn and Democrats saw how powerful digital, digital could be. And I also think we're never going to have a year like 2018 again, just for various, all of these different reasons that we don't have time to get into right now. But 2018 was a breakthrough year for digital. The, the money that we were raising online, I've never seen it since then, and we will never see it again. Just, we just won't. Um, I think that the pandemic as well, it opened up uh, a really big gap that digital could either fill for campaigns or it could not if they did not get smart about it. Uh, streaming got really much, much bigger. We have a lot more cord, cord cutters now than we did before. So connected TV and uh, over the OTT, which is the same thing as connected TV. Um, that kind of those kind of placements got much more valuable and much more important. I think Fetterman is certainly one who's using digital quite effectively. Um, state parties as well, I think, are getting smart. The where, where I left the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, they have become a digital forward, digital first state party, and they're one of the few who are. Um, they really invest in their digital program. They really understand how effective digital can be. Um, and with a party as big as them, with an election as important as them, that's that's an, that's necessary. Um, and others as well. I think Tim Ryan has a really strong email program. I think um, other folks like uh, out in Montana, God, what what's his name? John Tester. That's the one. That's the one. Him. Um, he has another another strong digital program as well. Well, excellent. I won't. Uh, I won't ask you who you think is doing poorly because that would be kind of sad. <laughs> uh, but we will take a commercial break. If you're a fan of the Post Riders articles, podcasts, and projects, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. It's a once a week digest of everything we've worked on, what the site is up to, and other things we'd recommend each Monday. 
We don't believe in subjecting you to daily annoying emails, but we do believe in keeping our most passionate and loyal supporters in the loop on what we've been up to. We know how inconvenient and annoying it is to have your inbox flooded with constant reminders and useless material. That's why we run a curated weekly newsletter that gives you a once a week scoop. New subscribers help us know how many people are reading and listening to our work and want to hear more from us. So go to thepostwriter.com newsletter to sign up now. And we're back. So let's talk big, big picture. There is a lot of evidence, and this is a, this is a, a cause or a pet issue or talking point of mine, is that at least at the federal level, one candidate outraising or outspending another has basically no impact on Election Day. We have an expert in the room now, so I'm going to just ask, does fundraising or even like better advertising ever actually influence the result of an election? I think that the uh, the assertion. Well, let me start. Let me start here. I think probably what you're referring to, right, is the number of candidates that we saw in 2020, big candidates who raised millions of dollars and got crushed, right? Sure. So we're. Th- I'm, I think specifically about Amy McGrath, who raised record-breaking amounts of numbers, record-breaking amounts of money, and got crushed by 30 points. Jamie Harrison, same thing. Millions of dollars got crushed. Sarah Gideon, same thing. Insane amounts of money for years and got annihilated, like all of them. That's all we are seeing. Um, So I think certainly it's um, easy to assert that money has no impact, but I think that that assertion, just that's just not the way that campaigns are functioning. Like, sorry, but campaign you need money and if you want to run some kind any kind of effective campaign like if you have no money you can't pay your staff that you're probably losing field organizers you're losing touches on voters you're losing votes if you aren't raising the money you're supposed to you have to cut something you're you're cutting from mail you're cutting from digital you're cutting from tv that's one less touch on a voter you're losing votes like if folks don't know who you are, you're losing votes. And the whole point of a paid communications plan, spending that money on mail and digital and media and TV and sending field organizers out in the field and paying for yard signs and all of that, all of that goes to getting a touch, touch on a voter and ultimately getting more votes. I guess my pushback is that with elections so nationalized and so polarized, it feels like we're you know, yeah, sure. Sarah Gideon raised all this money that allowed her to touch a couple more voters, but it didn't matter, right? And like because Bernie, I think that Bernie touched so many more voters than Joe Biden, but that didn't matter either. Because I think the difference, of course, is that we aren't magic makers, right? Like we can raise tons of money and we can put up tons of ads, but that's not going to change the political reality. And the political reality is that Amy McGrath was never going to win that seat. Ever. When's the last time a Democrat won statewide in deep red Kentucky? When's the last time a Democrat won statewide in South Carolina? Like, we can't change the breakdown of, of, like, there was just no way that Amy McGrath was going to win that race. I think where you are seeing it make a difference is in contested primaries, right? So Kathy Hochul, completely at... Kathy Hochul had an indicted LG, had to choose a new one, but still like wildly outraised her opponent and crushed him in the primary. Joe Cunningham, same thing in South Carolina in the South Carolina governor's primary. Wildly outraised his opponent, like crushed her no contest. 
Maura Healy, same thing, was running against this progressive firebrand in Massachusetts. Completely outraised her like it wasn't even even a contest. Charlie Crist in Florida, the most recent one. Like, mm. money makes a difference in these contested primaries, and money makes a difference when it gets down to it on election day. But it, I mean, as much as I would like to think that I have, like, the power to change election, like, it, I can't change the fact that Kentucky is the red, like, super red and is never going to vote for a Democrat. Yeah. So, so uh, somewhat related question. With, with advertising, there's this phenomenon of, of, like, going viral, and I think specifically of, like, I feel like Beto O'Rourke is someone who had, like, viral moments, like, nationwide, and I, I think that is a critique of it, right? It's like everyone in the world or everyone in the United States was talking about Beto, but most of us don't live in Texas, so it didn't matter, right? Um, but it was also free publicity for him. And, you know, Donald Trump's entire presidential campaign campaign was kind of free publicity because he went viral. Is going is like getting lucky and going viral like that, which I realize can also be manufactured. But is that better than spending big on a firm to do it for you? I'm not trying to <laughs> talk you out of a job, but you, you know what? Like you, you get where I'm asking. I do. And I think that. <clears throat> You can't like going viral is great. Again, it's not going to win you an election. I think that if you're able to capitalize on it and you're able to turn it into either money or votes, um, then it's useful and it's worthy. But I'm thinking specifically about Valerie Plame out of New Mexico, who ran in a primary in a I think it was an open congressional seat in New Mexico. She came out. She launched with this super flashy ad. Uh, she was driving down a desert road in this like cool car and like it she got out and took her sunglasses off and like it was just like a slick ad and it was cool and she got beat i think she came in like fourth in her primary because she couldn't take that she couldn't like she went viral for that ad she couldn't take that and turn it into anything she couldn't make either make enough money to like continue building any kind of momentum or she couldn't build enough press off of it to really do anything. But I think going viral is useful uh, in helping you either get money from you know, individuals or from these party committees. Like, if we're going back to this previous question here about whether money sways an election, how much a person raises as well has an effect on which organizations are going to decide to play in, in a race, right? Because if you aren't raising money, if you don't seem viable, the DCCC is not going to bother getting involved. If you don't seem viable, if you aren't raising money, if you can't pull your own weight, why would Emily's List spend money on your behalf? Like, money can go both ways. It can pay for very concrete things like field organizers and, and a digital ad, but it can also prove that you have some kind of momentum and it's it's can be used to gauge strength by the people who are in positions to be judging whether or not like end citizens united or you know mm. planned parenthood or any of these other organizations are going to get involved so if you're able to turn a viral moment into something where you're able to make more contributions to pay for these concrete things like digital ads or field organizers or whatever, or if you're able to turn it into some metric of support, then it's probably useful. But if you are just going to put an ad out, out into the world and spend millions on it and then not do anything with it, like it's not going to translate into votes. 
Gotcha. It, one of my questions before we wrap it up here. Is there... <laughs> I don't know like how to ask this. Is there a is there a way where if you could tear down this whole infrastructure and rebuild it up again while leaving yourself with a job, obviously, how <laughs> would you like how do you wish do you wish this were like built differently? This whole e- ecosystem of political donations and advertising and and all that. That's a really good question. I think um <clears throat> I think we've been seeing certainly a lot of questions, at least within the industry, about what comes next. Like, email isn't gonna last forever, so what's the next thing that we're gonna use to try and raise money? I think, like, the concept of raising money to pay for campaigns isn't new. It's something that's been around since the dawn of time. It's just that the the tactics and the placements and the way to do that has changed. Um, So what comes next when email is not a thing anymore? Like tech is constantly making it more difficult to do our jobs. Like Gmail is, I don't know, Gmail is a bad example because they bow to public pressure, but these various ESPs, email service providers, you know, it's about, they just make it more difficult for us to get into inboxes. They make it more difficult for us to add people to our lists without hard subscriptions, like all of that. When, like, ActBlue already took took action here. So it's kind of, it's a double-edged sword because like regardless of where we're at we're always going to be raising money it's just a matter of how we're going to be doing it um so what i'm hearing is the metaverse is the future of fundraising you're absolutely right yeah (laughs) do you do you think like i don't know this is a, a side question do you think like influencers will ever play a larger role because there are a lot of companies like hiring, like the influencer market, especially in China, which is completely unrelated to this, but it's like a huge thing. It's like it's like a billion dollar industry of mm-hmm. people who are paid to just like be into products. Do you see that happening in the U.S. with candidates? You know, that's interesting. I've had people ask me that actually okay. before. I And I think that it's just the next logical step, right? Like. I was saying before that people are too smart to see through all of the technology at this point. And it sort of feels to me like if the pendulum were to swing back, it would be swinging back to something more personal. Like your buddy, your friend with a million and a half Instagram followers, like is just deciding that they're going to talk about this particular case. I think that it's, it, it makes a lot of sense that we would be swinging back from this, um, really technical way of doing things back towards the personal touch, the personal connection. I, I don't think that that's with, uh, outside the realm of possibility. Hmm. Is is that a ethical concern, though, the idea that you would kind of basically pay a, someone to be like a pitch man for your, for your candidate, or is that totally legal? I don't actually know. So the cool thing about uh, legislation, especially legislating digital, is that it's always like a little bit behind so (laughs) i think we would probably like operate within some kind of loophole if that ever were to become a thing um operate within some kind of loophole until it's taken away from us like a lot of times tech is the one that makes these decisions about what we are and are not allowed to do before congress can so yes i do think it's unethical however (laughs) um Interesting. Uh, so 
as we wrap up, is there something that you wish you desperately wish that people knew about political fundraising or outreach that you hate explaining to people or that you just wish they'd leave you alone about? Google, Google isn't biased. You're just bad at your job. <laughs> I, I like that. That that fits with my worldview. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I, we've been seeing all of this about Google is targeting conservatives and it's putting us in spam. And yet, no, you're just running a bad. You just don't know how to do this, and you keep landing yourself in spam because you're bad at it. It has nothing to do with Google. It has everything to do with your own inability to land in inboxes. That does raise another question, though, which is how does one circumvent the spam folder? Oh, that's a great question. Love it. Um, so all of these email service providers, uh, they look essentially at your stats, right? So to determine if you're spam, if nobody is opening your emails, they're going to assume that you're spam and put you in there. If nobody is clicking on your emails, they're going to assume that you're spam and put you in there. So what you need to do is you need to get more people to open your emails and more people to click on your emails. So that means tricking the system a little bit. So if you're sending to a super small universe of folks who have clicked, I don't know, twice in the last week or whatever, you know that like, you can be reasonably confident that because those people have clicked twice in the last week, they'll probably click again on this email, which will drive up that click rate and get you, land you back in inboxes. All right, Mike, you can take that. That was obviously a really like <laughs> bare bones explanation, but. Answered my question. Take that back to your uh, right wing colleagues, Michael. <laughs> um, terrific. Thank you, Faith. We will end this episode with our In Our Lifetime for this week. Are you ready, gang? Yes. Okay. So we've spent a lot of time this episode talking about advertising and fundraising and driving up voter engagement. And the last presidential election and last midterm have both seen incredibly high levels of engagement in voting. Uh, so maybe it's working. The 2020 presidential election saw voter turnout of around 66%, the highest level of eligible voters since 1900. In our lifetime, will we see at least 75% of eligible voters vote in an election? Like, will this trend dramatically continue? Has that ever happened before? No. <laughs> then I, I'm going to say no. Okay. 75 seems like a lot for this country. <laughs> I, I agree. I think I'm going to say yes. I think I'm somewhat optimistic that we get some sort of national consensus around voting. Or we ban so many people from voting that we just get there by default. <laughs> he, he, uh, that, that's Here's, he, So Australia has um, compulsory voting. Right. Like you get fined if you don't do it. Uh, their last election, which was in 2022, 89.82% turnout. And that's like if you you get punished if you don't vote. So well, how how high is the fine? That's a good question. Probably not significant at all. But yeah. I don't I don't know. I'm optimistic. Hmm. Do, you, do you have a vote, Faith? I feel like I feel like I'm not optimistic. So what if you run an incredibly effective digital ad that gets everyone to register to vote? I, I don't believe I will ever have a budget okay. that high. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll end on that high note. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. First of all, Faith, do you want to plug anything, say anything before we sign off? Um, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Don't find me on Twitter. I'm just annoying. Okay. Do you, you can plug your Twitter. That's fine. 
No? Okay. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't want people to follow me on Twitter, but I do have ones. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah, no, I do have one. I just tweet about Princess Diana. You're asking for people to find it now is the problem. Now everyone's curious. Come investigate me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, everyone, you can definitely reach out to us on Twitter. You can find and follow us at the Postwriter, or you can email us at our email address, contact at thepostwriter.com. We love hearing from you. Come chat with us. Tell us what you think about political advertising, or if you love all those emails you've been getting from Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in your inbox. Uh, or if you have any other questions, we can pass along to our friend Faith here. We'll be sure to bug her <laughs> later. Um, Politics Express is a Postwriter podcast brought to you by thepostwriter.com. And you can check out the stuff we work on, things we've written, our other podcasts, and more over there. Uh, my thanks, as always, to you, Michael, for joining. Uh, and especially Faith, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys.